Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 23 of the Clarinet Podcast with today's guest, Hugh Sung. This episode is brought to you by Daddario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Daddario is redefining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with technology built from the ground up. By using the world's most innovative techniques to deliver consistently what was once made variable by hand, Daddario ensures excellence right out of the box as standard, not a surprise. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Daddario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. Today on the podcast, I speak with pianist, techie, author, teacher, and entrepreneur, Hugh Sung, who has been described as a modern-day Renaissance man. As a pianist, Hugh served on the faculty of the Curtis Institute of Music for 19 years and has recorded over a dozen albums and collaborated with some of the world's leading musicians and orchestras. As a techie, he pioneered the use of digital sheet music and co-founded Airturn, a company that makes wireless pedals for turning iPad and computer pages completely hands-free. Hugh leverages his love of technology to teach hundreds of students around the world through his online popular piano school at ArtistWorks, and is also the host of a popular weekly podcast called A Musical Life, which is a show where he shares stories about making music and the things that move our souls. This podcast has been downloaded over a quarter of a million times, and it's only been around for six months. It's definitely worth checking out. Through his online mastermind group at A Musical Life Mastermind, Hugh empowers musicians to gain entrepreneurial skills to help them achieve their musical and financial dreams. And in his free time, Hugh loves to cook and is currently obsessed with the joy of making Italian flatbreads. We discuss Hugh's successful podcast and mastermind, his recent interview with none other than the famous cellist Yo-Yo Ma, being a digital paperless musician, the air turn, online teaching, and working as and with collaborative pianists. The giveaway for today's episode of the podcast is a lifetime subscription to the A Musical Life Mastermind with Hugh Sung. This is an amazing opportunity, and I really hope it goes to a student or young professional that will really, really grow from this chance. If you'd like to be eligible to win this and other exciting giveaways mentioned on the podcast, please be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter at clarineat.com. Today's episode of Clarineat Coda, which is the new listener mail portion at the end of the show, features a question from Sue Ryle, and some Baroque arrangements that are completely free by Thomas Bassett. If you have anything you'd like to have featured or discussed or a question on the Clarinet Coda, please send email to feedback at clarinet.com or leave a voicemail directly on the uh, Speak SpeakPipe app on the website. SpeakPipe is a new sort of feature that lets you send a voicemail directly to my inbox and uh, you can ask me or the artist a question on the podcast in your own voice. Before we get started, and after this episode today, I'd like to feature short clips of Hugh performing his own arrangement of the Adagio Assai from Ravel's Piano Concerto.
Hi, Hugh, and thank you so much for coming on the Clarinet podcast today. Oh, Sean, thank you so much for letting me be on your show. It's wonderful to have you here. I have to say I've been listening to your podcast extensively, and it's just amazing. You just surpassed quarter million downloads. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's a huge achievement. And, and you didn't start your show that long ago either. When did you start it? Launched in November of 2015 officially, although I had pre-recorded several episodes. They all launched basically at once, but November was the official launch month. So when did you start planning for the episode? And, and <laughs> Sorry, for the podcast. And I guess we should say it's called A Musical Life. It's, yes. Uh, you're featuring all sorts of guests from the musical community. And what's really interesting about it is that the, the audience is not targeting only musicians, or in this case, we're only targeting clarinetists, but you're sort of allowing everyone to come in and experience music and, and hear what people have to say. That's really my primary goal. I want this to be a show that anybody can enjoy, particularly people who are curious about music, not just classical, not just one genre or another. I'm hoping to really cross-pollinate multiple styles and tastes of music together so that people can discover something interesting, something wonderful, but more importantly, just to realize the human beings, the human spirit of these wonderful musicians that and their lives and their interesting backstories and what inspires them to create the music that they make. Um, just so clarinet listeners can get sort of a taste for it, who are some of the guests you've had on? Well, let's see. I've had, I'm trying to think, I haven't had any clarinetists yet, although I do have Anthony McGill recorded. So he's going to be coming up in an upcoming episode. Uh, it's not hasn't been scheduled yet, but his brother, Damari McGill, flutist, uh, principal with the Dallas Symphony. He's on the, he's been, uh, his episode is up on the show. Um, so watch out for Anthony McGill. He'll be coming on pretty soon. And another future, I'm talking about future episodes. <laughs> I, I just recently had um, Peter Shickley, a.k.a. PDQ Bach. And this I is saw that. That was yesterday, yeah, right? That was, yeah, just yesterday. Well, just a few days ago. And uh, let's see, Pulitzer Prize winning composer Jennifer Higdon has been on the show. David Kim, concert master of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Um, I've had some really cool composers, other composers from the video game and film industries. Paul Englishby, who writes the music for the BBC detective show Luther. He was a fascinating interview. Um, Flutist Jasmine Choi, who I've collaborated with many, many times over the years. She, was, she gave a fantastic interview as well. And some Celtic singers. Uh, they, uh, Callum Martin sings Gaelic psalm singing, a very unique style of singing that's only found in one region of Scotland. And just magical singing that you, I, I would invite everybody to t take a listen. You, and his daughter... Isabel Ann Martin also. She's got this incredible angelic voice. And what's interesting, she's not a professional musician. She's a nurse by trade. But she has this incredible natural talent, beautiful singing styles. So this Gaelic singing. Gregory Allen Isakov is a very popular indie folk singer-songwriter. And he, this is one of the most popular episodes on the show. So got a lot of genres covered. Oh, Jordan Rudis who's the keyboardist for the progressive rock band Dream Theater. Oh, wow. So Rock, we've got folk, we've got classics, and Yo-Yo Ma is going to be coming on the show very, very soon with the Silk Road Ensemble, so I've got a conversation with him and several members of his amazing group that has crossed so many musical and cultural boundaries. That's going to be a fantastic episode. Can't wait to get that aired. So and this just is a, 
a huge list of people. I mean, how do you go about selecting guests for your show? <laughs> and it's a broad list too. I mean, I, I don't think I've heard any two that are alike, which is great. Thank you. Well, in the beginning, I started with the people I knew. Um, one of the nice things about being a collaborative pianist is by nature, I get to work with lots of different kinds of musicians. So when I was thinking of launching the show, I simply reached out to my friends, people I knew. And from there, it's interesting. There's been an interesting shift. Those people, as they came on the show, it became easier to reach out to other folks that I didn't know as well. And they would check out the show and see, oh, such and such a person has been on. And then they would agree to be on the show. And then in recent months, I've actually been approached by various public relations agencies, hmm. PR agencies um, that are representing various musicians. And they've actually been approaching me and saying, would I be interested in having their clients on my show? Of course, love having as much variety on. And um, the most interesting one with Yo-Yo actually came as a result of Sony reaching out to me. They're getting ready to promote a new documentary about the Silk Road Ensemble coming out next month in June. And so they reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in interviewing members of the Silk Road Ensemble. And I said, well, of course, but I would really love to have Yo-Yo on. And after they checked out my show, they said, hey, no problem. <laughs> wow. So do most of these interviews happen over the Internet now? I, I assume the first people you knew you interviewed in person. But what about today? Well, it's interesting. It was a mix, even from the very beginning. I mean, David also was done over – he was one of my first interviews. David Kim was done over Skype and over the Internet. So it was a mix of in-person. Gary Graff and I did in-person at the Curtis Institute. I think he was actually my first live in-person recording and there's a funny story with that because I almost lost the recording you know it's so difficult to book time with him <laughs> we recorded it and my battery had died in my little device I was ho I was so mortified I was so uh, red-faced and I told Gary oh I'm so sorry I think I might have lost the episode oh my god and I had to do some research and fortunately I found a fix that was able to recover the lost data even though the unit had not shut down correctly, I was able to extract the raw data, recover the episode, and Gary Graffman's interview was saved. <laughs> so wow. a lot of learning pains in my first few episodes. But nowadays, most of my episodes are done over the internet. But, was, but with, in Yo-Yo's case, because that was such a, such a special episode, I, it was being done actually in New York City. The Sony team was scheduling Yo-Yo and members of the Silk Road Ensemble to conduct a number of interviews at the NPR studios in New York City. And since I'm not that far away from New York, I actually offered to just drive up and be there in person. And they were great. The Sony people were so welcoming. They said, hey, that'd be terrific. It'll be better sound quality. And it's so funny because when I stepped into the studio, I expected to see a room full of other people, other podcasters. Well, the Yo-Yo and the other people conducted their interviews over radio with other stations, NPR stations, American, you know, other radio stations remotely. I was the only person, I was the only podcaster that had been invited to do this. Wow. wow. Yeah, pretty cool. So, yeah, it's, so it's, it's been a fascinating mix of in-person um, and whenever possible, I love to do it in person, but most, most of them are done 
over the internet. Had you met him uh, previously before this or never? <laughs> Boy, you're just great. You're just segueing in all my best stories. <laughs> I had actually, you know, and, and Yo-Yo didn't remember this, but I had actually played for him on several occasions. No pressure. And No pressure. Well, it was, it was pretty. <laughs> first, few, first few times were pretty intimidating. And it, the funny thing was, you know, so Sony had reached out to me, invited me to do the interview. A few days before I was going to go up to New York, another friend of mine asked if I would accompany him for a private lesson with Yo-Yo. How cool is that? So, of course, I said yes. Wow. So, I show up and accompany my friend and uh, we're uh, doing this lesson. Yo-Yo, oh my goodness, he was masterful, absolutely incredible as a, in terms of the ideas he had in exploring sort of the DNA of the pieces that we were playing for him. But the funny thing was, at the end of the lesson, he was remarking, because I, I, I'm a paperless pianist. I don't use paper sheet music. I read all my music off of an iPad. Mm -hmm. And towards the end, so we had two concertos we were playing through, and then my friend, uh, Yo-Yo, asked, is there anything else you want me to listen to? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I have um, uh, the uh, Don Quixote Suite by Richard Strauss. Well, for that particular suite, there are no piano reductions. And Yo-Yo didn't remember this, but several years ago, when he came to do that with the Philadelphia Orchestra, I, the orchestra had asked me to accompany the private, Meister, private conductor rehearsal with Christoph Eschenbach. But they said, we don't have a piano score. So I actually had to write my own piano reduction from the full score. Oh, my God. And I, I brought that in for that particular rehearsal. Well, it just so happens I still had it in my iPad because my iPad has 6,000 scores. My entire library goes with me everywhere. So my friend just says, oh, I have to play the Don Quixote thing as well. And so I said, oh, no problem. I just whipped it up, and both of their eyes went, <laughs> their, their jaws dropped, and, and Yo-Yo said, you know, I told them, well, I had to write this. You wrote this yourself? Boy, you're a smart guy. And then he was so <laughs> impressed that I had an iPad, and then my friend told him, oh, by the way, did you know that he also invented the air turn, this page-turning pedal? Yo-Yo's eyes practically bugged out, and he said, I need your business card. <laughs> wow, that's really cool. So I got Yo-Yo's business card. He got mine. And when I got up to the studios in New York City, uh, he comes into you know to the studios. I'm sitting there waiting for everybody. And Yo-Yo goes right up to me and says, hey, do you know this guy? <laughs> <laughs> he, he reads digital music. He's really great. At the inter and the interview started off on a completely different footing because we had had that amazing musical and technological interaction ahead of time. So... And one of those remarkable things I could not have planned, but just came together so beautifully. So well, just, it's just amazing. It's so interesting because we, we were talking about this before we went on air, but musical uh, endeavors and technology these days are really kind of intertwined and you can't have one without the other. And it's amazing that inventing a product for an iPad could lead to a introduction to, to, with Yo-Yo Ma, for example, you know, and you know, it's, just, it's funny how that, that goes. I mean, that didn't happen in Mozart's time, you know? Well, the funny thing is, you know, during my, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but, you know, I, I, for 19 years, I was on the faculty at the Curtis Institute of Music, one of the greatest um, classical music conservatories in the world. When I made my transition into the business world and I started attending trade shows, it's so funny. I thought people would know me for being at Curtis, but mm -hmm. I actually became better known as the guy from Air Turn. <laughs> nobody had ever heard of, nobody had ever heard of Curtis. 
You know, it's, wow. it's kind of that most musicians internally know, but nobody had heard of it. And everybody knew me. Hey, that's the air turn guy. Cause I had done so many promo videos and a lot of uh, content that featured me. <laughs> so it was pretty funny to be better known as a product spokesperson. And there's another funny story. So one year I was actually representing air turn at the flute convention, the national flute association. They had a huge convention. And so I had a booth for the company and I was selling products and my friend Jasmine Choi, who I referenced, she's a phenom- one of the world's greatest flute players. She had been invited to perform at the NFA convention. And when she, knew, when she heard about this, she had asked, asked me if I would accompany her for that performance. And I said, well, I have to be at the booth, but I'll get somebody to cover the booth for me while I play with you. And so we go down to the stage. We do our performance. I'm still in my air turn uniform. And everybody came up to me and said, they were shocked. They thought I was just a salesperson. They didn't realize I played the piano. Oh, wow. <laughs> Much less played with Jasmine. So it was kind of neat to be able to sit so comfortably on both sides of the fence. It was pretty neat. Well, I really want to get to the air turn. But before we do that, um, do you feel that the experiences with air turn and the videos that you made kind of led you to, to build confidence and, and launch your podcast? Or did you have other experience with radio? Or how did that, what, what sort of um, what challenges did you meet? And how did you sort of spawn that aspect of it, if that makes sense. Sure. You know, it's interesting. This goes back a long way, well before Air Turn. I had always been fascinated with technology. And many, many years ago, I heard about this funny new technology called blogs. <laughs> this goes, this takes <laughs> me back quite a bit. Blogs, when blogs were brand new, the big buzzword was, wow, you can get famous really quickly. It's easy to publish stuff. And I was a little reticent because it was a lot of work to put those things together back in those days. But when blogs started taking off, I started taking notice and started seeing if there might be some way that I could try it out. So I started my own blog at Hughesung.com. And a little bit after that, I got interested in multimedia. Now, this is you know, back in the, in the 90s. So back then, putting together videos, we didn't really have YouTube back then. You had to host your own videos. But I was curious about doing some sort of production. So my early experience, you can still see the old videos on YouTube now. Um, I started interviewing friends just to learn how to do it. So it was a combination of video interviews. And I actually did some early iTunes, uh, back in the early days of iTunes, I started experimenting with podcasts. It's just a very short-lived podcast. I don't think it's up there anymore, but, and again, you know, experimenting with microphones, recording and editing. And so I had an interest ever since the 90s, well, actually early 2000s, I should say. Um, so I had had experience there and with Air Turn, that actually helped me as I transitioned from music into business. I took all those experiences, building my own websites from scratch, producing my own podcast, the early primitive kind making my own videos, and then I applied that towards most of my marketing duties at Airtrain. So that's what I specialized in, creating product commercials, if you will. Interesting. So write, your, your experience yeah. almost came before Airtrain. Airtrain didn't, it, it, yeah. it did, yeah. My blogging experience, my writing experience helped me to create marketing materials for Airtrain. And believe it or not, I did all the graphics, I did all the video, uh, video work, all the audio work, in the early days of Air Turn, even believe it or not, I designed 
the first product boxes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it, it, you never really appreciate how much goes into a box until you have to make it yourself. And they are really works of art. My oh, goodness. yeah. All the details and everything from the barcode to the, the logo to the types, you know, the fonts that you have to use, even the photographs and the placement, you know, just making it aesthetically not just pleasing but sellable. <laughs> yeah. So all of that went into, yeah, so all my experiences have combined into so many different avenues, air turn and beyond. So who is your like dream guest to have on the show? Well, you know, there is this amazing clarinetist. He runs this incredible podcast and his name is Sean <laughs> Perrin. Man, if I could get Sean on my show, that would just be the cat's meow. <laughs> I'll get, I'll get the, the management to look at that. We'll see. <laughs> if you know any of these agents, I would love to talk to him. It would be such a treat to have him on the show. <laughs> so he, he was joking there, but he's actually serious. We just did a, 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 a another podcast episode. I'm going to be talking to him on his podcast, The Musical Life, about, uh, about my new album, Dream Songs, and some of the other things that I've done. But um, and, that, and that was a great episode. You were a wonderful, wonderful guest. It's going to be terrific. Can't oh, thank wait. you. It was fun to come up. on. For oh, sure. thank you for being on as well. But there must be someone else. Like, well, <laughs> are you looking to like when I started mine? I know that I really wanted to someday talk to Martin Frost, and as many listeners know, I've already done that. Um, but what about for you? Like, there must be some musician that you're just dying to get a chance to speak with. You know, to be honest, there are so I, I want to be open and wide. Hmm. I think the people that I want to have on the show are, frankly, people I don't even know yet. I mean, Gregory yeah. Allen Isakoff is an example of somebody. I, I, I don't know folk musicians. This was a result of a friend of a friend who told me, you really should have this guy on the show. I said, oh, okay, I don't know who he is. And it just turns out to be an amazing connection. He's an incredible musician. And again, it's, it's one of these things where you never know who you're connected to through your circle of friends. I think one of the most exciting things about doing the podcast show are the friends I've been making. Mm -hmm. And those friends lead me to new friends as well. Uh, just in even the PR people, some of the composers I've had on, I would never have known them. And so it's hard for me to say that I want such and such a person on because I get introduced to somebody and it's it's people ask me so what's your favorite episode well it's the last one i did or it's the one i'm doing now <laughs> i i fall in love with every guest that i have the opportunity to talk to and to get to know and explore their music so it's really hard to say i love everyone that's been on the show um i love all the episodes that have been up they've been so diverse i feel like i'm a student all over again i'm learning so much and getting a chance to hear music I know, would not have heard unless I'd had this show. So I is that a nice... Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, I found the stories to be so interesting. And even in the most surprising places, I mean, uh, the guest that by the time this airs, probably in June, the episode that will have been last week's episode is a company called Vientos Bamboo. And they manufacture really, really gorgeous products right in Argentina. Mm. And they sent me some to try and give away on the show. And I finally got a chance to talk to them. And I was really surprised to hear that one of the reasons that their company manufactures all sorts of products, like everything from clarinet swabs to cork grease to reed cases, um, in addition to their sort of flagship products, which are now becoming popular internationally, was because of the, their mission to help the local economy and to provide affordable products for the local people because importing items is too expensive there. 
Mm. It was just, that's, you know, as an outsider, I was thinking, well, what are they doing making cork grease? And, and now I'm like, oh, wow, that's such a great mission, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Things you just wouldn't know. So anyways, let's get into your product called Air Turn. Um, this is really relevant for clarinetists, especially in the modern era here where some of these contemporary pieces are requiring just page upon page upon page of scores and uh, not much time to, to actually turn those pages. In fact, I just saw Lori Friedman, um, who's featured in episode four of the show, I believe, perform in Calgary here, and she had 11 pieces of music across, I think, eight music stages. <laughs> <laughs> it was huge, and it was very striking from the audience. It was just a really, really cool thing to see. Um, but what, what, what sort of led you to co-found the Air Turn, and, and what kind of device is it? Well, I, I should preface this by saying I'm no longer with the Air Turn company. I left about two years ago. I sold my shares. The company's still there, still going on, and I'm great friends with all of the people still there. I decided to go back to music full-time and try you know, returning to my roots a bit. Um, but the Air Turn product... So how did this all start? It, it started with me being totally absent-minded. I'm one of the most forgetful people uh, when it comes to paper, I lose things so easily. And as a collaborative pianist, as an accompanist, I'm required to learn thousands of pieces of music and have access to all that, all that music as well because I play with just about every instrument you can think of. I can't tell you how many times I've been on the road or gone to a rehearsal, gone to a lesson, or even gone to concerts, only open up, opening up my bag only to discover I forgot my music. I left something. In fact, I've got this story. Anthony McGill, when he was a student, he had asked me to uh, accompany him for a major audition in New York City. I'm driving up the New, York, the New Jersey Turnpike, and uh, I, I, at that time I lived about two hours away from New York City. Halfway up, an hour into the drive, just something was nagging me at the back of my brain. I checked my bag. And to my horror, I forgot one major piece of his repertoire. Oh, my God. And so I called him on the road and said, Anthony, I am so sorry. I forgot the music. And he's, you know, he's getting ready to do his audition. And there was no time for me to drive back and back to New York. And fortunately, you know, he, as he told me later, he did find another pianist. <laughs> but I felt like I just ruined his career. You know, and I've done this with other artists. I, I've, I, I was touring with Hilary Hahn. I forgot music on the stage in our, one of the venues. And the next location we went to, I forgot the music. <laughs> I run out, look for something at the local music store, the music library. Aaron Roseanne, we flew to St. Louis. I forgot some sheet music, some rare sheet music there. And just the stress of remembering if I packed that stupid piece of paper with me <laughs> was so overbearing. I st and I started dreaming boy, wouldn't it be great if there's some way I could carry all my music with me digitally? Now, keep in mind, this is many years ago. Uh, the only types of portable computers were laptops, okay? Microsoft, Microsoft started coming out with these, this mobile operating system called Windows CE, and this really dates me, okay? And so they were coming up with these, you know, these small, what we called back in those days, portable, uh, port, um, personal digital assistants, PDAs. Uh, the Palm Pilot was an example of one very popular back then. And then they started coming up with larger and larger form factors. And then my dream was, oh, I wish they would come up with something that would be large enough for a sheet of music. But there were two problems. There were still, the music was still in what we call landscape 
mode. You could only see it in a laptop view. And if you've ever tried to see a piece of music on a laptop, the old-fashioned kind of laptops, you can only realistically see half a page at a time, which would mean you would cut off you know, the, the page in the middle, which works for some music, doesn't work for others. There's no way to see a full page in portrait mode vertically back then. That's what's so frustrating about using uh, software to write music yeah. on computers. Yes. So finally in 2001, Microsoft came up with the tablet PC running Windows XP. And this was the very first computer that could actually rotate the view of, uh, a, view of a piece of paper, a document, in portrait mode where you could see a full page at a time, not half a page at a time. For me, that was my light bulb moment. I thought, finally, I could actually read music on one of these devices. They were prohibitively expensive back then, but I went ahead, bought, bought one of those units. I scanned some music, and I, I took it out, you know, tried it out, and I fell in love. It was great. Even back then, the primitive technology, the music looked great, and it even came with pens where you could draw ink markings on the music, and it felt like a smooth Mont Blanc pen, gorgeous annotations that you could draw. The only problem was you could only read one page at a time. So the new situation for me was, okay, now I've got to find a way to turn the pages, right? I didn't want to have to use a keyboard or a mouse and use my hands to turn the pages. I mean, we're talking digital technology. There must be a way to do it with some sort of a pedal. So I started searching around for page-turning pedals. And I Googled pedals, pedals, you know, pedal controllers. I couldn't find anything. The funny thing was it took me a while to realize that the industry term for that was, because I was thinking as a pianist. Pianists, we work with pedals, the damper pedal, the soft pedal, the unicorda pedal. But in business or in industry, they use the word foot switch. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a long time to figure out the word foot switch before I started finding commercial foot switches. So I, I, I bought a couple of them, and the problem with them was that they all clicked. They all used read switches. So every time you press them, you hear click, 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 which is annoying, especially if you're trying to make a, a CD recording. Um, or in, even in performance, the people would hear it off the stage. They'd hear me funny click, click every time I turned the page. Um, they all were wired. They had USB cables that you had to plug into the computers. And so they looked awful. You see this cable dangling down from the, uh, from the music rack on the piano. And they were all required some level of programming. And so, I mean, I was sort of comfortable with it, but for the average non-techie musician, this was just going to be too difficult to use. So my dream was, boy, if I could come up with a silent, simple, sleek, in other words, wireless page turner, that would be my dream. So anyway, the, the, the tablet PC continued to evolve, and I continued to experiment with my own different contraptions, different iterations of trying to modify switches that were never really meant to be used the way I was using them. They were all either hand switches that I tried to create different cradles for for my foot. The problem was they were either not completely reliable well, actually, most of them were not very reliable. But they were all ugly. They all made noise. Well, the noise is actually very interesting to me. I want to touch on that for a second because sure. you have found actually something very intriguing, and that is that within design, I know it's it's considered good design to give feedback. So you press the, the home button on your cell phone. It should give you some 
tactile or auditory feedback to let you know that you've done that outside yes. of the operating system. But what they didn't think about is all the uses. And so you sort of found a new use for this idea of product and mm -hmm. and completely a niche market, which they couldn't even have dreamed of, you know? Now, exactly, exactly. And because the, the, the clicking was intended to be tactile feedback, but, but I didn't want that. <laughs> exactly, because in this case, and I guess they hadn't considered, but for someone like a musician, the clicking is the very thing that's letting you know you turn the page is detracting right. from the performance. Like, exactly. you know you've turned the page because you're looking at it. <laughs> exactly. So the story is, one day I'm giving a recital at the Curtis Institute of Music. One of the, I accompanied a lot of the student recitals. After the recital, this woman comes up to me backstage and she has this wild look in her eyes. My friend and I have been looking all over, searching the world for somebody like you for the past five years. <laughs> she wow. gave me her business card, invited me to come out to Colorado. Long story short, I met my future business partner, Lester Carplus. Lester Carplus had started 13 other companies. He was a, a, a serial entrepreneur. I'd never met one like that in person. And so he proposed going into business together because he, he had been looking for a musician, uh, a top-tier professional musician who was also comfortable with technology. And then back in those days, well, even today, it's very hard to find somebody who's comfortable in both. You have people in technology who know, you know not, as, not enough about music to be known in the music world, right? Mm -hmm. And you have musicians, most musicians, <laughs> they, you know, they, they only have a passable, passing knowledge of technology, certainly not, you know, not the level that we would need to start an actual tech company. And so in me, he found that rare person that had both qualities. And so we went into business together and started AirTurn. So I would consider myself a very uh, technologically well-rounded person. But I, the digital music thing has always been a wall for me. I've never found, I had an iPad and honestly, when I went to sell it, I, I couldn't find it under my bed. It had been so long since I used it. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think part of the problem was because the screen, even though it was larger than anything we'd ever seen up until then, um, it was still not big enough as a sheet. But now, of course, they have the iPad Pro and I'm, I'm thinking of trying this again. Yeah, what tips do you have, though? Like, are there, is there a certain app that lets you mark up the music or how does that work? I actually wrote a book on the subject. And the book is called From Paper to Pixels, Your Guide to the Digital Sheet Music Revolution. You can actually find the book on Amazon. Uh, it's available as a paperback or as, as a Kindle download and also available as a file download for iBooks. Wow, I'll have to check that out. Yes. I'll put a link to that in the show notes so everyone can go and, and, and have a read of that. But what about battery life? I mean, I another concern of mine is, you know, I, I know that we'd like to think it it will last the whole concert, but maybe for whatever circumstance it won't. Have you, have you had issues with this or no? You know, with the iPad, it's never been an issue. You know, with the old computers, yes, that was always a fear. So I would have a, a power cord running from the, the, the old tablet PCs, which would have maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half, more likely a 30 minutes of battery oh, time. Oh, it was bad so in those days. So it was days. terrible. Back in those days, it was terrible. But the iPads run for 10 hours. You know, so yeah, true. I, I don't even bring my power cord with me when I go for a full day of work. It's amazing. So with the iPad, it's power has never been an issue. I simply and it's become a habit. I just charge my iPad every night and in the morning it's ready to go. And the air turns themselves. It's funny. Uh, the air turns average about 80 hours of battery life. I'll charge them maybe once a month. <laughs> wow. And I can go a whole month with all the work that I do and just remember to charge them once a month or so. 
That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, th I was thinking just now too, these would be so good for percussionists because um, obviously you're using your hands. You can't exactly flip pages while you're playing something like a marimba with four mallets in your hands. Mm -hmm. And uh, many times, because you're looking at larger scores, your parts are multiple sheets long. So, yeah, so just yeah, be absolutely. brilliant. And so. you know, the air turn not only works with the iPad, it'll also work. We designed it uh, as, as a universal controller. So it works with Android tablets as well. It also works with Mac and PC. So conceivably, you could get a big screen PC or a big screen Mac and you know, a good 20, 23-inch monitor and read your music much more comfortably, even read two pages at a time with some software as well. So lots of options. Digital music gives you the freedom to resize your music. And there are even low vision options depending on the apps that you're using. So there's a lot more flexibility. My book actually goes into a lot of the, the apps and applications and techniques for viewing music on different kinds of monitors and screens and devices. And even though the book is a few years old, one of the things I was very mindful of, it's because I've been paperless for so long, I wanted to share timeless principles that have allowed me to use the same scores that I you know, scanned in 15 years ago that I still use today to help people understand that if you understand the basics of the technology, this will serve you for many, many, many more years to come. You don't have to worry about being obsolete if you understand the underlying technological principles. And that's what my book tries to do in addition to the you know the apps that were current at that time but which you could easily replace nowadays with whatever is um is is available today well i'm gonna have to try it again because i i consider myself to be sort of technologically ahead and then i still show up with my old tree music and Ooh, well can i can i share can i share an interesting story now this is going to come out with my interview with with anthony when it when it comes out so anthony mcgill uh, he is now using air turn. The, the reason he was using an air turn is I, I, I remember seeing uh, Facebook, an emergency Facebook post from him saying, help, I need a Bluetooth page turner. Is there anybody that can help me? He was in, I think he was in Chicago, somewhere in Chicago or some other city. I need one right away. Where can I get one? And so I messaged him back immediately saying, you know, the air turn is now available in guitar center stores around the country. Just go to your local guitar center and you, you should be able to get one. So apparently the reason he needed it was because of exactly what you described, this contemporary score, this modern music that had basically no consideration for page turns. Mm -hmm. And he, so he needed an air turn that night. He, he did it. He, he got the air turn, performed with it. And that's it was really the modern music score that forced him to get an air turn for his iPad. Well, here's another benefit of digital music I just considered is, and here, here's how, how behind the times I am. I had just invested two hundred and forty dollars in stand lights. I should have just bought an <laughs> iPad. I should have just bought an iPad. What was I thinking? Yeah, that's yeah, hilarious. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you you've been super involved in in all sorts of things. Like you're talking about a, an ebook you have, the podcast, this product. You're still a an active performer, and my God, there's so much going on. And uh, you're so masterful with all this stuff that you've actually started a mastermind on your website. Yes. And yes. what is a mastermind and what, would the, what does this offer musicians today? A mastermind is actually an old idea. This is an idea that was, was um, introduced by Napoleon, I think it was Napoleon Hill, in his book, Think and Grow Rich. And the idea is, in the business world, a mastermind is a group of mentors, a group of uh, like-minded business people that gather together to share ideas to help each other be accountable and to grow in, in knowledge and to help each other succeed. And so this is an application that I'm, that I'm trying to initiate 
among musicians. You know, as we're looking at the news and seeing more and more news of how difficult it is to find jobs in orchestras or even university jobs that are paying less and less and the struggles it is to make a living as a musician, one of the things that I wanted to pass along from my experience co-founding a tech company, uh, being an administrator at Curtis, in my experience with digital, digital media you know, and um, uh, starting a podcast and all my entrepreneurial activities, I wanted to see if there was a way that I could pass along what I know to help other musicians learn to be entrepreneurs themselves, to make a living for themselves and become better business people. And that's something that's very alien to most musicians. We think of our art so much and we don't know much about business principles that can help us get more gigs, get more students, get a better, you know, learn ways to produce a better income where we're not relying on other sources, traditional sources. So the Mastermind is a membership site that you can find at amusicallife.com, uh, sorry, amusicallifemastermind.com. And it's where musicians gather together. We have articles that I write to help introduce the, print, the basic principles of entrepreneurship, uh, a form where participants can post questions and share ideas. And I sometimes use the questions from the form to create articles and tutorials. And we also have a weekly live web chat where a group of us will get together and, again, share ideas, share stories, hold each other accountable, check on each other's progress. And it's a wonderful way to build a sense of community and to help each other achieve greater success as musicians. Yeah, I think that's really, really cool. So, Hugh, you've been very generous with the giveaway on today's podcast. Um, a membership for your mastermind currently costs $25 a month or $175 for an entire year, which mm -hmm. actually is a pretty pretty good uh, price for buying the full year there. But you're giving away a lifetime membership to the mastermind on today's podcast to yep. a lucky a lucky listener. <laughs> so that is a very, very awesome re reward. And um, it looks like I might be chatting in there a little bit too, so you might get a chance to talk with me Um and some other fantastic uh, entrepreneurial-minded musicians sort of behind the curtains at, uh, at Musical Life. Um, so another aspect of your career, of course, that we just talked about is, is collaborative piano. And I have a feeling that this is going to be of interest to clarinetists because for passing auditions of any kind um, in many situations and uh, taking examinations, all sorts of things, we have to work with pianists on a regular basis. Um, and although it might be ideal to sometimes have an entire orchestra there, in many instances, it's either not feasible or affordable or, or not practical um, to do that. And most people actually end up knowing most of the orchestral uh, concerto repertoire, for example, with a piano first or even for their whole career. <laughs> if sure. they, if, you know what I mean? So absolutely. Um, what, what do you think makes a great collaborative pianist? Yeah. And you've been hailed as one of the finest pianists, uh, collaborative pianists of your generation. Oh, thank you. Well, what makes a great collaborative pianist, I believe, is the pianist's attitude towards service. And to be more specific, a pianist who knows how to listen, who knows how to serve the person they're working with, that doesn't put their ego in front of them, but listens to what the other person is producing and enhances and brings that other person out to the spotlight. My job is to make the other person sound fabulous and to support them and not to get in the way. And, you know, obviously I, will, I would uh, bring, come in when it's appropriate to support the musical context. But, uh, you know, again, it's the level of listening that 
connects so deeply. And it's interesting. Uh, it's very rare to find the collaborative pianist that knows how to, as I put it, use the force. <laughs> you know that scene in the, uh, the old original Star Wars movie where um, Luke Skywalker is on the Millennium Falcon and Ben Kenobi is trying to teach him how to use a lightsaber and he puts the helmet on top of Luke's head and Luke's like, well, I can't, I can't fight with this thing. I can't see anything. And Ben tells him, use the force to reach out. And he does. He stretches out with his feelings and he's able to block these laser bolts from a flying robot without even looking. It's, it's interesting. You know, being a collaborative pianist on that level is so similar to that sensation where I don't have to see the person I hear their musical intent, and I can, almost, I can almost tell what they're going to do before they even do it. Um, when you can find a pianist on that, on that level, it's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful collaboration. It's an experience I love giving to the musicians I work with. And many times people will say, oh, now I'm spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this, and then this is something I, I, I wish you know, more pianists would ask about. I'm surprised that most pianists don't, but it's a level of listen. It's the combination of a level of listening and a level of understanding the psychology and the musical intent of whoever you're working with, whether that's a little child or whether that's a seasoned master. And I'll tell a funny story. Um, uh, the, the way I learned how to do this was with the great legendary romantic violinist Aaron Rosand. He asked me to join him professionally when I was still a student at Curtis. And while I was a student, we had been trained as pianists. We do chamber music. And the way we would follow each other was through a series of, you know, coordinating, looking at each other. You know, and we, you know, lift our heads, bring our heads down, breathe together. We watch each other breathe. A lot of intense eye contact, right? Everybody's bouncing their heads, moving together in time. When I started working with Aaron, he didn't move. <laughs> oh yes. And suddenly I felt like I was blind. He didn't signal, he didn't breathe. And what made it even worse, he changed his mind every single time he played the piece. So it was always So different. not only not only was I blind, but suddenly I I would I would start to mark my music. Okay, he's going to slow down here. And then suddenly he wouldn't and I have to erase it, rewrite it, redraw it. And his his the variety he was so mercurial in terms of, and he was always experimenting with different ways of playing a phrase. That's what made his playing so vibrant, so inventive. And I was totally out of my league. And he would yell and scream at me and just tell me, <laughs> come on, you can't, come on, count, you're early, you're late. And it, it terrified me. I thought, you know, I was going to have a nervous breakdown. And suddenly I kind of had that Luke Skywalker moment where I had to throw out everything I had learned about following in a company. And it was one of those moments where I had to learn to let go, relax, and almost close, and literally close my eyes. And when I opened my ears, suddenly I could hear, oh, this is what it sounds like when he's going to the frog of his bow. Oh, this is what it sounds like when he's going to the middle, the tip. Oh, he's about to change his phrase, his timing. I heard the movement of his bow without even seeing it. So wow. I could I learned to, find, to hear all of his bow changes. That was the start. 
And then I learned to listen to his musical motion, whether he was going to hesitate or charge into a phrase without looking. And by that time, I learned to, to see without seeing, to see with my ears. Then I was like a, like a glove to his playing. He could do whatever he wanted. He could change his mind. I stopped marking my music. And I also learned to let go of all the tension in my muscles so that it's like a kung fu move. The more tension you have, the slower you are. But when you're like water, you can move much more fluidly. And so I, was, I learned to master shadowing him like nobody else could. And we, it, it was the foundation of a beautiful partnership musically and artistically. And then, of course, I had to learn the same techniques with clarinetists because their attack is very different from a string attack. Their attack is different from a brass attack, which is different from an oboe attack, a bassoon attack, a singer attack. But once you learn their, the ways that different instrumentalists approach and leave and shape their phrases, then that technique can be applied universally. And it's a wonderful way to, to provide the coloring and the emotional background, the palette for the musician to swim in. So what are you looking for in a pianist? You know, somebody that really listens and not just, and not, doesn't have to have things spelled out for them. But you should be able to do anything you want and they understand why you want to do whatever you do, even if you change your mind a hundred times, that's what you look for <laughs> in a good collaborative pianist. What are you looking for as a, as a collaborative pianist in the person you're collaborating with? Uh, you mentioned sort of artistry and taking control. Is, is there anything else? You know, it's funny. Um, I, I used to, when I was a student, I used to be a real snob and say, oh, I only work with, want to work with such and such type of musician. <laughs> as I have worked with more and more musicians, I've thrown that out the window. And I love working with everyone because everybody has a different idea and for me what i look what i love looking for is to just to tell the person hey do whatever you want i want you to feel free i don't mm -hmm. care what you do do whatever you like the crazier the better and it gives me a, a challenge almost like riding a bull to see if i can still be with you and that's what i look for i look for people to feel confident that they can be free to do whatever they want or try whatever they want that's what I look for, for people to be genuine to their own musical identity so that I can take what they have and just enhance it in my way. What do you think about um, the clarinet repertoire? What are some of your favorite pieces to play? You know, I recently had to play the Mozart clarinet concerto over and over and over again, over a series of days for one of the major orchestra auditions. The funny thing was, even though it's just a piano reduction, it was, I never got tired of playing it, accompanying it, hearing it. What a magnificent piece. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, the Mozart, the Mozart clarinet concerto is just one of the most beautiful pieces of music, period. Um, of course, the Debussy Rhapsody, you know, it's so, so gorgeous. Um, I love the, the Schumann Fantasy Stuck, and of course, the Brahms sonatas are so terrific. I mean, really just about anything <laughs> yeah the clarinet i was talking with someone else about this the other day and the clarinet really has arguably the best repertoire of the wind mm. instruments and really came in at a very very fortunate time in music history 
Um, oh, I don't know. The flute players might argue with you. Uh, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Argue with, and the bassoon players. <laughs> well, but we often too have some of the most mature repertoire from composers. I mean, you mentioned Brahms there. I mean, one of the last things he did was come out of retirement to write the clarinet pieces that yeah. he did. Yeah, that's so. And uh, Mozart. I mean, I won't say he reached an age of maturity. That would be completely wrong. But he, I think Is the sixty-time than that that little move. Of the, of the Mozart clarinet concerto. Is there anything more beautiful? I mean, my goodness. I don't, yeah, it's amazing. Really beautiful yeah. stuff. So what about, um, and this is a question that I, I don't know if you have an answer for this, but do you have some pet peeves that people, people either demand of the collaborative pianist or that they themselves do when working with the collaborative pianist? You know, it's interesting. Um, my experience may be different because I hear from other collaborative pianists about their peeves, like, oh, that person's so demanding, or that person's so unreasonable. Um, my experience has been very different because everybody I've worked with has usually come away with, oh my goodness, I wish, you know, I, I, I wish we could do this again. Or the unusual, you know, I think some accompanists uh, complain that they don't get any recognition after a concert. You know, the, all the attention is on the soloist. The funny thing for me is I, I, I don't get that. Um, I play a concert with, you know, even if it's just a background thing, inevitably I have people coming up saying, wow, I've never heard the piano, you know, sound like that with such and such a musician. So I don't really have any pet peeves per se. I, I, the pet peeves are really the ones that I've heard from other pianists, but the way I've approached collaboratively. Um, I don't look for the limelight, but I've just been so blessed and so thankful to hear from so many folks that have heard me in recording a performance saying, in, for instance, um, one of the things I, I, I love to do is play, you know, concerto reductions, you know, and one of my favorite ones, in addition to the Mozart, of course, is the Sibelius Violin Concerto. And I've, I've heard many times where people come up and say, wow, I really heard the orchestra. I heard the various. I heard the clarinet in that part. I heard the, the different instruments. The way you brought them out. Um, so, yeah, I, I I've just been very, very thankful and very blessed to play in a way I think that brings the the collaborative piano out in a way that I think most people have never heard before. I find it interesting you mentioned bringing out the different instruments. Um, my wife plays piano, and I was asking her about sort of her thoughts on, on some of this stuff a while ago. And, and she mentioned too, like, oh, if that's a part that's in the clarinet, I want to I want to hear the clarinet when I play it. And the, <laughs> I yes. thought that was an interesting mindset. I, I've left one question almost till last year because based on my experience with other pianists, I'm worried you might hang up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I just noticed a second ago, actually, you, you, you used the A word for the first time. Um, what are your thoughts on the term accompanist versus collaborative pianist? Are they... Are they one and the same, or do they have different meanings? Is one is one of them derogatory? What are your thoughts? I think the whole I think the whole uh, issue is silly, really silly. <laughs> I'm an accompanist, so what? I'm a collaborative pianist, so what? Really, for me, uh, again, I think it goes towards uh, the heart of servanthood, being willing to be a servant, being willing to serve others. For me, that's that's the best honor to serve well. I think. Samuel Sanders came up with the term collaborative pianist. And, you know, I think accompanists struggle perhaps with wanting the recognition, wanting to be recognized for their work and feeling slighted when the other person they're working with gets more attention. I think it really stems from a lot of that. And I think it's sad when we have to find 
terms to elevate ourselves. Um, I frankly, I, I just don't give two hoots. <laughs> call, call me an accompanist. That's fine. I mean, let's make beautiful music together. As long as I get an opportunity and we make something beautiful. And more importantly, if you and I can work together and we move other people in a deep and meaningful way, um, you can call me um, ham radio operator. I don't care. <laughs> you can call me a well, keyboard tinkler. I, I don't mind as long as what we do Makes some makes the world a better place, a beautiful place, and moves people truly from a sincere place in our hearts. That's I, I don't care about titles. I really don't. It's it's what we do and how we serve others. I think. Well, I like that mindset. I just it's been funny in my experience because I remember I've I've known a few people who actually got collaborative piano degrees, and and I understand what that means. You you know you're learning how to work with others and read all the signs and things you were just talking about, but. Um, they look at the word accompanist as if it's almost, you know, you just swore at them. And, and, I, and that's, uh, you know what, that's, that's very, very sad because that attitude will alienate, I believe, far more than connect. Well, and, and to be honest, I mean, I, I wanted your thoughts on this, but the Brahms, for example, the Brahms clarinet sonatas, those sure. are actually sonata, they're labeled as sonata for clarinet and piano. Mm-hmm. So there is an instance where absolutely no, no questions asked. That is a collaborative sure. and, experience. And, and, and the Beethoven violin sonatas are written for a piano and a violin. Beethoven Thanks. actually writes the piano first. But you know what? It, the collaboration is where it's at. It is so beautiful. And but I, listen, I'll tell you also, even when I'm accompanying an encore piece where I'm just doing an oompa part, even when I'm doing a reduction of an orchestra part that's not really written for a piano but written for another instrument, if you do those things well, that's art. That's a beautiful thing. Even if you're not if your part is not written on a quote-unquote equal level with somebody else, there is something so beautiful when you collaborate with your whole heart, sincerity, and do the supporting role that you need to do, but do it well. You know, that's a, that's a lost art. Well, absolutely. And, and as a performer, like the, the piece, it ha- like it must be recognized that obviously the concerto for clarinet is, is written to feature the clarinet, but exactly. it wouldn't... Sure it wouldn't be much without the accompaniment part. Like the accompaniment part is part of the music. (laughs) (laughs) But not necessarily, you know, again, there are pieces where the piano is not equal and that's okay. And again, you do your role well, trust me, you will be recognized. So before we wrap up today, I just want to quickly touch on the uh, online teaching that you do. And in addition to your Musical Life podcast, The Air Turn, your work as a collaborative <laughs> pianist, and oh my God, everything else, you're also doing a series of online teaching at a website yes. called ArtistWorks. Yes. And specifically, go to artistworks.com forward slash Hugh, H-U-G-H hyphen Sung, S-U-N-G. And I teach a school, uh, an artist work school called the Online Popular Piano School. And the premise of this is really the heart of my philosophy of music education, where anybody can learn to play beautiful music, no matter if you've never played the instrument before, no matter if you've had experience. Anybody is, everybody's welcome to come learn. And this is something that I wish more teachers would spend time thinking through. We, I think we get a little bit up in knots in terms of, quote-unquote, the correct way to teach rather than being more welcoming so that everybody can learn to play, you know, something beautiful right off the bat. And um, ArtistWorks is fantastic. What makes ArtistWorks so unique is the video exchange learning system. And what this is, it's a combination of several several hundred videos that I've recorded, pre-recorded, 
that outline an entire curriculum, taking somebody who's never played before, walking them through, and I teach them using songs, just popular and folk and classical songs. Um, and they learn from the songs from the very beginning. They're playing music right from the get-go. And they can follow my curriculum through these videos that they can watch and learn on their own. And if they need help or want some feedback, they can shoot their own videos and submit them as video exchange submissions for linked to any particular piece or even their own, whatever they want to play. And then I, in turn, respond with a personalized video, helping them correcting their mistakes, helping making them suggestions in a video exchange response that gets linked with their submission and the pieces they're working on. It's a wonderful system that enables several things. It enables the students to get personalized feedback anywhere around the world, wherever they are in the world, at any time. They don't have to schedule the lesson, per se, in real time with me. And then I, in turn, it gives me the ability to work with hundreds of students uh, in my school um, because, I, again, I can respond whenever I have time, but still give personalized responses to them. It's, a, it's just a wonderful way to, to really utilize and leverage technology to teach far more people than I normally would be able to with you know, in-person lessons or even quote-unquote Skype lessons. It's a, it's a wonderful technology and I'm just such a privilege to be um, part of this amazing faculty that's teaching. It's probably one of the world's greatest <laughs> online learning platforms for learning to play an instrument. So people can expect to, to get sort of the basics down, but can they really go from, from beginner to, you know, professional with something like this? There must be a point where you've got to break off and have some, some private lessons. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'll give you a couple examples. Number one, I have um, several people and one person in particular, but I've had several people who found me through my free YouTube series, Claire de Lune from scratch, where I teach Debussy's Claire de Lune, measure by measure, note by note. And several people found me through that. One woman found me through that and then joined my school. This is a woman in her mid-50s who's never played the piano before. And within one year, she was playing the full original version of Claire de Lune, one of the most beautiful, one of the most difficult pieces for the piano literature, completely from memory from beginning to end, fluently. Wow. That's as a result of these video lessons, yes. Well, you're going to have I, to get me on these video lessons because I've been trying to brush up my piano skills. and. Uh... See, what makes the, the video exchange learning system so powerful is the video. Because we're using videos, we have um, a way for students to see and, you know, really teach themselves. They can see their own mistakes. They learn faster. They learn more effectively. And, of course, in my online popular piano school, I utilize all the technological tricks for showing the sheet music from my iPad, annotating, overhead cams, all different techniques for annotating the, the videos so that they get a powerful lesson that I think actually in many ways is more effective than teaching in person. I have several almost professional level advanced students that, yes, do get professional help from me through these video lesson exchanges. So absolutely, I'm capable of, uh, you know, with the right teacher, you, yes, you can get professional level help. And, and for, for those who's never, who've never played before, you'll make progress like you never imagined before. And I, I don't, I, it's no kidding. I, I I love the way that it's so effective to help people make real and documentable, you can really documentable progress on their playing. Because you can see a history of where you were when you begin and where you get to as you progress. You can see how you improve from lesson to lesson. 
Well, that's fantastic. So I'm definitely going to have to check that out. And I'll put a link to that in the uh, in the show notes there at clarineat.com. Um, and then in the interest of time here, we're coming up on an hour. I think we should uh, we should we should uh, wrap up for today. But is there anything else you want to touch on before we before we move on? Well, you know, I, I just want to congratulate you on the Clarinet podcast. I think what you're doing is fantastic. And it's just such a joy and a delight to connect with your audience. And again, I think this is an example that music is one language. It's wonderful to have you on my show. I, I'm so privileged to be on your show. And wow, you're just doing such a terrific job serving the clarinet community and exposing them to such a wide variety of musicians and musical ideas. So I hope to do the same thing with my show. So again, thank you for letting me be on here. Absolutely. It was fantastic. Thanks for those kind words. And I, I, hope to have, I hope to have you on again, actually. It was great to talk with you. Well, hopefully one of these days we can actually play together. Wouldn't that be fun? Oh, that'd be even better. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, for coming out. thanks so much for coming on the show today, Hugh. Um, oh, if, so if, is there anywhere guests can find you online? We mentioned well, your air turn and the, uh, mus- and the uh, artist works, but what about your personal website? Well, my personal website is hughsung. As I mentioned, I'm not with AirTurn anymore, but they can certainly go to that website. Um, they can find me primarily these days on amusicallife.com. That's where I'm most active with my podcast. They can also read a little bit more about me in the About page. But I have my personal website as well at hughsung.com where they can go more in depth about me. Um, yeah, those are the two primary places. But, of course, you can get A Musical Life um, through iTunes, Stitcher, and all the other usual culprits for uh, whatever podcatching app or uh, platform you use uh, to listen to podcasts. And what about social media? Are you on Facebook or Twitter? I'm everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> everywhere. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Pinterest. I've got a YouTube channel. So, yes, uh, I, I'm quite covered. <laughs> Pinterest is one I haven't explored yet. It just, it's, oh, it's, 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 a nice, it's a nice format. So I'm on LinkedIn as well. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things, that, of course, just to close off real quickly, the modern musician, it's so important uh, to be present, to make networks, to make friends. And social media provides a powerful way to create these platforms to connect to so many people and opportunities. So that's why I'm so active in all these platforms. Very, very helpful. Yeah, actually, if I have you on again uh, in the future, I'd, I'd like to do that. And I think that it'd be really cool to focus on any of uh, all these business of music aspects that you're so passionate and successful with. So that'd be really cool. I would love to have the opportunity to speak to fellow clarinetists to help them re-examine their careers and see if we can, you know, supercharge their musical careers to make a better living. And listeners, there's a new feature on my website uh, where you can actually leave a voicemail. If you have a listener question for Hugh, you can leave it on there and that'll actually let you ask him uh, in your own voice on an upcoming interview if we if we chat with him again here. Ah, oh, it's a great idea. I would love that. So thanks so much for coming on the, the podcast today. It was so great to chat with you, and I look forward to doing it again soon. Oh, Sean, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. I can't wait to talk again.
If you enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please see the show notes at clarineat.com for episode 23. Today's episode of Clarineat Coda is coming up right after a short message from our sponsor. This episode was brought to you by Daddario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Daddario is redefining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with technology built from the ground up. By using the world's most innovative techniques to deliver consistently what was once made variable by hand, Daddario ensures excellence right out of the box is standard, not a surprise. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Daddario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. Welcome to the Clarinet Coda, a new section of the podcast dedicated entirely to listener thoughts, feedback, questions, and any sort of news or uh, announcements you'd like to make to the clarinet community. I'm really hoping this is something that can bring everybody together to talk about and discover new things, including concert series, uh, CD releases, or any sort of thing like that that otherwise is a little bit hard to get out there. So, um, our first thought today, or question, I guess, comes from Sue Ryle, who many of you will remember from episode 16 of the podcast. She has a question for Martin Frost, and I'm hoping that I'll get a chance to speak to him uh, in the future again soon. The first time we had over 50 questions submitted, so it was a little hard to get through all of them. I sort of tried to ask something similar to this question, but uh, maybe next time I speak with him, I'll have to bring it up again. Here's Sue Ryle's question for Martin Frost. I would still really like to know why Martin Frust stuck with the Bohm clarinet instead of choosing the early clarinet after studying in Germany, because he does prefer the darker, typically German sound. Thank you. Thank you so much for submitting that question, Sue. I'll definitely have to ask Martin if I get a chance to speak with him in the near future. Um, if anyone does have any insight about that, I would definitely be interested in, in hearing about it and... Uh, same with everyone else, I guess. Why did you choose or not choose the, the clarinet system that you currently play? I know for me, it was the only one presented, and I simply have never tried or seen the reason to, to switch yet. Um, although I think some people are more open to that nowadays, especially as they travel more and experiment with dish, different teachers. I mean, uh, in another episode of the podcast, I think episode 12, I, I spoke with Raisa Fahlman, who is someone who did go to Europe and ended up switching to the reform bone while she was there. But I think that most people, it's uh, it's very rare to do that still, even in this day. So this has been a contentious issue. It's worth noting. Some people have very strong opinions about this, and I'm not entirely sure why. It's, you know, it's just at the end of the day, just a personal choice. But uh, I guess we'll see. If you have any discussion about this, I'd love to open up some conversation on the forum about it. Uh, Clarineat.com, I added a forum recently. And if you'd like to discuss this and other sort of topics, it would be a great place. The second submission for today is a, is a selection of free Baroque clarinet pieces by composer Thomas Bassett. Thomas Bassett is someone who decided that even though the clarinet did not appear until the late Baroque period, the lack of original music for the instrument is simply unacceptable. So he set out to write music in the Baroque style to try and fill this void. The pieces are available from him directly, and if you'd like more information, including to check out how some of it sounds on the website, please see the show notes for episode 23 at clarineat.com. So, in Thomas's own words, you can grab yourself a skilled continual player and get to work. He also suggests using any combination of instruments to keep with the Baroque style, and he states that the possibilities are endless. Indeed they are, and I guess it's never too late to write music in an old style. 
I'm sure Bach would be thrilled. And uh, like I said, you can check out a recording of this piece on the website at clarinet.com. Thanks so much for those submissions. Remember, if you have something you'd like featured on the Clarinet Coda, you can contact me directly at feedback at clarinet.com, or you can leave a voicemail message on SpeakPipe directly on the website. Thanks so much for listening to Clarinet, and I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.